Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome back to Hiawatha to most of you. Uh, great to see you. As Spencer was saying earlier, if you're, if you're visiting for the first time, thanks for being here. Um, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors. And um, we are, as Peter was saying, finishing a series today in the book of Judges, the Old Testament book of Judges, which is the seventh book of the Bible. And if you're just joining us, you might be thinking, oh man, it's the last sermon in a, a longer series, but it's actually a great day to be here. We do a lot of summarizing, and the way a lot of these books are, are written, especially in narrative sometimes, is there's these great kind of summative comments and teachings that will uh, expose you to, I think, or remind you of, um, take you back through a lot of the main motifs and so forth. So we'll um, be doing some of that uh, today. But, uh, but again, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks, band, um, for, uh, for that song. Now, a second time is great. Uh, today, guys, we're looking at uh, this theme of hope and hopelessness intertwined. That's been our kind of subtitle to the book. If you've been here, you've seen that on that last slide, too. Just uh, the, the idea, one of the big motifs and themes in Judges is hope for hopeless people, or in, in, I think in, in the immediate context, the, the hopeless Israelites or kind of hopeless individuals that constitute God's people in the Old Testament, but who are a microcosm of us. And so in our hopeless state as, as the human race who are kind of um, hell-bent and just bent towards death ourselves, uh, it's an unavoidable thing. God is a God who prom- makes promises in light of that and enters into that. And uh, so we see that in this book, but I think, you know, these are these kind of end marks, these bookends that we're making with this story. As Peter was saying, the solution to judges is not in judges. It's Jesus Christ who comes much later in history and in the biblical narratives. And yet he's whispered here at the same time. And so he is kind of in the book. The solution is in the book because he's whispered in the book. And so it's kind of both. That's why there's been these, you know, tension things of, wow, it's hopeless. And yet there's tons of hope at the same time. Today will, will be a, yet another one of these, another version of, of these uh, kinds of things. But really, uh, things are quite bad. So these last, so last week, uh, Peter... Peter Spencer preached on these uh, on chapters 17 and 18, similar kind of stuff. Today we're in the last three chapters. We'll read just a portion of 19 as our main text, and I'll summarize the rest. But basically, to get your bearings narratively, the last five chapters are are just these stories that that uh, describe what life was like on the ground during the times the judges reigned. And so stretch these stories out uh, kind of backwards over the whole book. It's possible they happened chronologically after Samson died, if you were, you've been here. And it is kind of chronological in some ways, the book, uh, but it overlaps. The, these stories, though, are basically, it's kind of an appendix of sorts, saying this is what was happening on the ground. This is how people's lives looked. This is what God was saving people from. This is what got Israel into this predicament in the first place in being enslaved and being oppressed and getting in all kinds of trouble, running a million miles away from God, kind of to themselves and to their sin, harming people, harming each other, bringing great offense to their creator, and yet bringing these kind of people groups to, to enslave them. This is why God has been raising up these judges or savior figures to de-enslave and to save and, again, whisper Christ in the process. They, they're, they're prophetic in that regard. Today, though, unlike last week, there's no name to judge. Samson was the last name judge. And so last week and this week, there's just it's a different spin kind of on uh, on judges, it's basically like, let's look at like under a microscope people's lives and understand judges that way. But still with that said, a lot of Jesus, look for him as we read and look for just this kind of pronounced definition of sin in, in a way that we really haven't, haven't seen so far. In fact, as a precursor to this sermon, just to brace you a bit for this, uh, and I've said this a couple of times in this series already, so it might not mean as much, but I hope it does. 
Um, these last few chapters are about as bad as things can possibly get for Israel. In fact, you might actually think, and I'm not exaggerating, you might actually think after we read this, that is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Or the worst thing I've kind of felt uh, reading, when reading these kinds of stories in this section of, of Scripture. Uh, not an exaggeration. We'll see uh, polygamy. We'll see, just again, talking through some themes here, gang rape, dismemberment of the one who was raped, so murder of the person too, um, uh, or at least she was already dead, but you'll see in a second, dismemberment, and then civil war amongst the people of Israel, which is a huge indictment in its own right. That's not going to be a huge focus of today, but we'll see it. Um, so aspects of this are very rated R, uh, at least in theme. And so as a bit of a precursor, if for whatever reason, especially looking at the idea of rape, which will come up again, uh, we're not going to talk about it topically too much today, but just talk about it narratively, and I'll explain the difference uh, as, we, as we go, or at least allude to it. If rape is a difficult topic for you on whatever level, or if it's a trigger of some kind, maybe due to your past or present experience, just, just know a few things right off the bat. One, and we'll talk about this as to, in terms of why these are in the Bible, one, God's hate, God hates these kinds of things. And he gets very clear in the Bible, in these stories, he hates it. And two, relatedly, he wars against it. He, he fights for the oppressed all the way through the Bible, in these stories, and through his son Jesus later in the story, and then now present day through the Holy Spirit's ministry in and through the church, and in his common grace through Christians and non-Christians alike as these things are battled, uh, judged, prosecuted, you know, things like that. But then third, uh, Hiawatha is not a perfect place, but it is a safe place to process this kind of stuff too and to find healing through Jesus. So women especially, if you'd like to talk to someone, Emily Kleiber on staff here, if you don't know her, she would love to do that. Uh, she, she is, uh, actually we talked this week and she's uh, hoping to hear from some of you or at least pl- kind of planning or prepping for that. So if you'd like to talk to her about it or about your, your past or your present experiences, this issue on whatever level, uh, she heads up our counseling ministry here and would love, uh, love to talk to you. So you can email her directly at emily at hiawathachurch.com or write it on your blue card in some coming weeks and, and we'll, uh, we'll connect to you. So, but With all that said, even as we might distance ourselves a bit from, the, from this story personally, and as for some of us that's just kind of more natural to do, I'm not saying right or wrong, it's just we might do that. Even as we do that though, we may still wonder this question as, as we read. And, and that is, why are these types of stor- stories here at all in the Bible? And our answer, that's going to be our big question for today. I'm going to frame it that way and come at this from a variety of angles. But uh, our answer to that question, not an exaggeration, this is everything. It's crucial to our understanding of sin, God, Jesus, and gospel. So much so that you could say without darker stories like this, everything would change theologically. They are here for incredibly important reasons, and their absence actually would have a ripple effect throughout the whole Bible, and it would change things like Jesus's, what he came to do, is it what he did on the cross, the, the atonement, our understanding of that, our future, who we are, even in our sin as, as human beings. And, and so it's not just this story, but this is one of the darker corners of the whole Bible, uh, without question. And so this is a good example of, or like microcosm, of the rest of the, the narratives that, you know, told the line of these things throughout Israel's, Israel's history. So, anyway, that might be kind of vague so far, and if it is, that's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to some of that. But it, 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 I want to just, I want to heighten this a bit and say this is not just, oh, let's talk about it through this lens. This is everything. Why are these types of stories in the Bible? Our answer to that says everything about our theology. 
and everything about how we read the Bible, and everything about how we view ourselves before God, and everything about Jesus, and everything about the solution that he, that he presents us. So, so let's dive in today. What I'm going to do is summarize 19, 1 to 21. We're going to read uh, 22 to 30, verses 22 to 30 in chapter 19, the second half of chapter 19, as our main text. Then I'm going to come back and summarize 20 and 21, like in two sentences, so really quickly. But I think the main part, the main kind of problem passage of sorts in the, in the climax of uh, the, the three chapters is sort of one story, uh, but it falls in uh, the latter part of, of 19. So let's start by summarizing. I wrote this out for clarity because it's not just a sentence here, so just follow along on screen. I'll, I'll pause a couple of times for clarity here. But it begins in verse 1 by saying, A certain Levite took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And that, ge- that, that geographical location, Bethlehem, the small town in the province of Judah, is very important. I'll come back to that later in the sermon. But for now, a concubine was a female servant whose primary job was to produce more offspring for the patriarch. And so, yes, that means polygamy. But no, that does not mean it's at the heart of God. This is already sin taking place. A man having more than one wife or, or, or vice versa is not at the heart of God. Sin is already kind of running rampant here on a marital level. But then to continue here, She was unfaithful to him, it says. We don't know how, maybe sexually, maybe otherwise. And she fled to her father's house to escape the situation, probably out of fear. The Levite, her husband, went after her to bring her back and has this prolonged exchange with his father-in-law who shows him great kindness and hospitality. But then he, the Levite, finally leaves with his concubine and finds a place to rest at Gibeah, a town in Benjamin, inhabited by Benjaminites, uh, Israelites, which is north of Jerusalem. The reason they chose Gibeah is because at that time, Israel did not have possession of Jerusalem, uh, which is just south of it. And so their thinking is, we'll stay in this area where our people are for reasons of safety. So just to show you a map, if you, if you like this kind of stuff, uh, this larger square here is just kind of a, a close-up look of this southern area of, of Israel, uh, was becoming the kind of the greater nation of Israel. This is the land of Canaan that's being occupied now, or is by other nations, but they're being driven out by the Israelites with God's help. That's the whole context of Judges. But anyway, here's Bethlehem where the Levite comes and takes his concubine, so to speak, to quote from verse 1. They want to travel north. I'll go in this one. They want to travel north to Ephraim. Uh, They travel here out of the province of Judah into the province of Benjamin to the town of Gibeah. Here's Jerusalem staying here thinking, oh, our people are here, other Benjaminites, so people of Israel, uh, we're going to be safe, we're going to be okay. They'll show us hospitality and and things will be just fine uh, for the night on their way to Ephraim, which is another province. This is where they want to go, but the whole thing happens right right there. All right, anyway, so let's keep reading. They actually do find hospitality in Gibeah. They find this one unnamed man, an old man, who offers them hospitality, and everything seems like it's going pretty well at this juncture. Even though polygamy is the backdrop here, everything's going pretty well. A husband pursues his wife even after he cheated against her. It's actually kind of positive to bring her back. And then we also see uh, God honoring glimpses of hospitality twice in these narratives, once with the father-in-law before and then next with this um, this unnamed old man in, in Gibeah. So things are looking kind of up. But then right when we start thinking that, things turn really dark fast. In fact, if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, this is meant to be narratively and theologically a revisitation of that story. To say, now Israel is just as bad as those pagan cities were 
back in Genesis. If you don't know that story, don't worry about it. You don't have to know to understand the meaning of this passage, but if you do, you'll see a lot of correlations as we read. So let's read now the, the main text for today, Judges 19, 22 to 30. As they were making their hearts merry, so the Levite, his concubine, and, and this old man showing hospitality and his family, as they were eating, drinking, being merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And that's a euphemism for sex, if that's not clear. Verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came out and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. All right, so just by means of summary here, I want to comment on one thing going on in this last paragraph and then look ahead to these uh, next two chapters, again, by way, by way of summary. The first has to do with the, the dismemberment piece. Uh, there's a cultural element here, tons of wickedness, of course, and strangeness, and probably just, you know, gasp-worthy commentary, but we'll come back to it. But the reason he likely cuts up his um, concubine and sends parts of her throughout all of Israel uh, is likely to incite the other tribes of Israel to fight against the tribe of Benjamin. So sort of kind of like do justice here and uh, execute vengeance on them uh, on her behalf. And so this is the home of the ones who raped her to death, to, to be clear. So it's basically a signal. We know this culturally, that this was done sometimes with animals, but never with humans. And so it doesn't make dismemberment justified, to be clear, not at all. He's obviously a part of the problem as an aloof, careless husband. He basically did this to her as well by sending her out, or it's unclear if the old man grabbed her arm or if, or if he did, but either way, he's a part of the problem. But this is still why he did this. It was to incite Israel to come and call out the Gibeahites of this tribe and judge them or prosecute them or, or kill them, probably ultimately kill them, uh, God, God doing this uh, through them. I'll talk about that in a second. So, the unspeakable act at the end, then, when they say this, take counsel, speak. Nothing like this has ever been done. When they say that, it likely has much more to do with the rape itself than it does with the dismemberment. And so probably a little, little bit of both, but especially the former part, and that's important uh, coming up here a little bit, little bit later. So, chapter, so that happens. Chapter 20, then, is a story of how God himself uses his people, especially the tribe of Judah, 
to fight back the Benjaminites and purge the evil from their midst. That's where the civil war takes place. Huge indictment on, uh, on Israel that that's happening at all, but it's also a good thing that God is fighting this, fighting this evil. Uh, too. We'll, we'll talk about that soon. Chapter 21, then, is a story of how the Israelites felt bad for Benjamin and wanted to help ensure their survival by giving them wives through these super shady means because they're almost eradicated at this point. Ensure that they have these wives and they secure them uh, really kind of unjustly and harmfully. So it's a further demonstration of abuse towards women and a reversal of the good of chapter 20. Because chapter 20, some justice is taking place and some good is happening, but it's a reversal. It's, it's almost like, oh, this one thing was kind of like atoned for at least or fixed, and yet now it's happening all over again in chapter 21. And then the, the book just ends. In, in 21-25, it just says, after that, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, period. So there's your book of Judges, the last, the last three chapters, and that, that's how the whole thing ends, period. And then Ruth, Ruth begins, if you know that, uh, that book, which is a glimpse of light in the time of the Judges too, but that's for another day. Okay, so here's the big question again. Why are these stories here? And there, there's two reasons. We'll talk about the first one to begin. The first is for our sake, but that's a general thing. We'll talk about that in a nuanced manner here from three different angles. So one it's to show us uh, what sin is, really, and to help us understand how the Bible defines it. And so what I mean by this is, he, God, doesn't just address vague notions of evil in this book or in the Bible, but this kind of evil. And this kind of stuff, then, in the, in the Bible, when you read these stories, the presence of it prevents us from saying, well, what is sin anyway? What really is that? It's a weird word. We don't use it much in, you know, in our lives outside the Bible, and you know, it's kind of relativistic these days. Your definition of evil is different from mine. I don't feel convicted by this, but you do. So is there really right and wrong as much as we've been, we've been told or we've been taught formally or as, as the Bible indicates? And so for a, a culture like ours that is very morally relativistic and comfortable, we need this stuff. It, it justifies everything God is doing in the book. Not that he needs to be justified, but it does that. It justifies God's actions. And it keeps us from being too abstract with our definition of sin. Because you know, no one's going to look at this and say, well, that's actually okay that the Levite did that. That's okay that the old man did that. That's okay that they said, yeah, you shouldn't have sex with my, this guy I'm showing hospitality to, but here's my virgin daughter. Like, no one's going to say, oh, yeah, that's actually okay. Or, yeah, that might be wrong to you, but to me that's right. And, and some may do that, but that's just silliness. And that, that's calling evil good, and that's a sin and needs to be called as such. And so... What it does is it helps us hyperlink click on the word sin and boom, this new, web, this new web page shows up and this is what was happening in their day and this is what happens in our world today as well. Things very much like this. And so it's good news then. The second piece is good news that God clearly wants to fight it and does. God hates it and literally fights against this stuff in, in, well, right in the book, outside this too, but right in the book. So in Judges 20... It says, and the Lord said, when the Israelites are like, how are we going to fight this? How are we going to purge this evil from our midst in the land? God said, Judah shall go up first, this, this tribe of people, and they shall lead the fight against the Benjaminites. Which is to say, God is militarily directing Israel's armies against these gang rapists. He's doing it. It's reminded me a lot of the movie Spotlight. If you guys have seen that movie, um, 
in, uh, I forgot when it came out, a few years ago or something, but it's about the reporters who are working to expose the Catholic Church sex abuse, abuse scandal. Did you guys see this movie? There's a moment in that movie, though, at the beginning, if you saw it, if you didn't, just bear with me, but in that movie in the beginning where these reporters um, aren't, like, you know, becoming aware of this and moving towards atheism or abandoning the church, they see themselves as the means by which God is going to purge the evil. You guys have seen that? Remember, that? remember that kind of moment where they're saying, no, I think God is on our side, not the abusive priest's side, but, but our side in terms of how we're, we're seeking to expose and purify this whole thing. I just th- that's a cool thing to come, you know, I think from a, a movie like that to say that the movement was not from that whole thing to atheism, but from that whole thing to God's on our side and we're the agent sort of, of purification. But anyway, if you didn't see it, just let that go. But if you did, it's kind of a cool touch point. Uh, so the third thing is, with, all, with those first two things said, understanding what sin really is, the gravity of it, to show that God clearly hates it and fights against it, but then there's one more piece. This is not like a, a, a clear, well, like fully rounded depiction of, the, of sin and the problem in the Bible. For that, we have to go to this third thing, which is to show us, this is good news, but hang with me, to show us that God has a plan to forgive even sins of this nature in, in Judges 19. In other words, the Bible does this all the time, and, and we could spend all day on this, but it lists and narratively describes sins that Jesus later dies for and forgives. So it lists it out. Think of like lists, like the Ten Commandments or something, like in our inability to keep those, but also look at stories like this, and it says these are things that that explains the horrors of what the Son of God went through to save us from our sins. These are things that, that Jesus comes into the world to battle and fight and wear on the cross and absorb and speak out against, but ultimately die for. And so, so ask yourself, Christians in the room, all of you maybe, but Christians in the room especially, in your mind, as you read this and are confronted with this kind of horrific stuff in, in the Bible, is there room at God's table for these types of people? If they weep over their sin, if they repent, and if they believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their, of, of their sins, is there room at, their, at the table of God? In fact, let, let me up the stakes here even further. This, this whole thing, like so many passages in the Bible, this whole story is meant to be a mirror. Uh, to the point where, where we're confronted with this idea that we are the, quote-unquote, worthless fellows of Gibeah. That's us. What, whatever our background, whatever we've done, uh, it, it's a mirror. It's us. If you guys have uh, read that story in um, uh, it's, it's 2 Samuel something-something, but anyway, it's when, it's when David and Nathan, or David sins, and Nathan the prophet's there, and, and Nathan comes with this story to kind of expose David's sin, and starts the story, and David's like, oh, this... I can't believe that this is happening in Israel. And then Nathan comes around and says, you're the man. I'm summarizing this way too quick, I know. But do you remember that story? Those of you who have read it, like you're the man. He says, whoa, I thought the evil was way over there. I thought so-and-so did it. And then he totally flips it and says, you've done this. That's what, that's what the Bible, that's like, a, again, another microcosm of what every sermon, every time reading these things in the Bible should end up being. It, it's like a flip. It should horrify us that it's happening and yet it should horrify us that it's happening here all the more. So we're the biggest problem, rather than it being out there. The Bible takes us through stories like that to move from the one to the other, to move from how dare they do that to it saying to us, you've done that, 
and I've done that. And, and you might think, wait a minute, I've never done that, or I would never do that. But that's foolishness to speak with such certainty, and a failure to consider Jesus' own teachings on the matter, which highlight the heart over the action. So have you ever hated someone? Have you ever wished them dead or wished them harm? In, in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus says, Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, if you've lusted after another woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Like you've committed spiritual adultery. And he, he levels the playing field saying you're just as liable to the fires of hell if you've done that than if you've committed physical adultery. So super offensive teaching that drove people away but also brought many to their knees, you know, begging for help. But, but, but just eliciting this like, you know, oh, let's listen to this guy kind of response in them, in them too. So it's the same with this story. Husbands, have you ever neglected your wives? Have you ever put your own comfort first at their expense? Is it really that different? I mean, at the heart, at the core, is it really that different? Until we understand that we are just as guilty and liable as the rapists of Judges 19, Christianity will just remain a social cause for us, but not a liberating gospel. Because what we'll do is we'll see evil out there and think we're different than it. It's very natural to do. It's not like it's 100% false because there are qualitative differences between rape and not rape. There's consequential differences, right? But in terms of guilt and liability, there's not before God. And so what we'll do, though, is we, if we just see it kind of out there, it'll just become a social cause, and we'll say, all right, because that's evil and I'm better, it's up to me to fix it in Jesus' name. And Christianity will become just this kind of series of, like, causes to rally behind and things to fix in the world uh, in, in the name of, of Christ. Even though we might look at, like, the broad like, list of what the mission of the church is and say, yeah, that's on there. It's just not the top. It's not the very top. But this Judges 19, like sin, the, the sin of Judges 19 is in here idea, actually prevents us from seeing these stories as simply causes to rally behind, but sobering narratives about our own depravity and need for redemption. There's a parable in, in Luke 18 where Jesus teaches this because people are trusting in themselves that they were righteous, it says. In, in, in verse 9. But part of this, he says, there's these two men that go to the temple to pray. One's a really good religious teacher, and one's a tax collector like the scum of the earth in the first century. And they're both praying. And he says, the really good Pharisee, the really good religious teacher, looks at the, the sinner and says this, God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this pathetic tax collector right here who can't even approach You can't even approach the temple like me. And what Jesus says here is, do you think that he went back to his home reconciled with God with that kind of prayer? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, He's just as hellbound as before. He trusted in himself that he was was righteous, didn't see the sin in here, but saw it in someone else. There's a lot of truth here. This is tough. But as we apply this way of thinking to Judges 19... I mean, here's here's the the rub. If we think when we we look at this whole dismemberment thing and rape thing and murder thing, if we think, phew, at least I haven't done that, or 
at least I'm not as bad as a rapist. How are we any different from the Pharisee? We're not. We've done the exact same self-righteous, sinful, arrogant, I'm a, I'm a great person prayer as he does in this, in this parable. If it's about comparison and a totem pole or grading on, God grading on the curve or ranking, we've done the same thing. And, and then there's no place for us in God's kingdom if we think that way because we don't think we're that bad. And so we have no need for Christ. And our spirituality then will be about us leveraging our self-perceived righteousness rather than submitting to what God says we need to be saved, namely Jesus' bloody death and his resurrection three days later. Stories like this, to borrow from Romans 3, actually I was talking to someone after first service was saying, it's like you're preaching all of the first part of Romans and, and the end of Judges here, and he was right. But to borrow from Romans 3, stories like this make us close our mouths. Stop boasting. Stop bragging. We have nothing to say. We're way worse than we thought we are. And it leads us to sit down and listen to what Jesus actually has to say. When he talks about himself, when he talks about his love for us, when he talks about how he's the remedy, how he's going to fight the, the, the greatest of battles for us, the, great, the greatest of, of bloody fights. He's going to go and eradicate evil from our hearts and figure out a way to do that without killing us in the process because he dies for us. And so w- without this piece, the, I mean, the Bible, Judges, the rest of the sermon here won't make sense either, but um, we, this is why we talk about the bad news first. You know, if we really come to terms with this, if we really get it, at least understand there's a fork in the road here. I know I'm not convincing all of you right now when I say this. There's probably just two camps here today, and that's okay. But understand there's a fork in the road. If we, if we don't see what I'm talking about, it's a very slippery slope, and the end game, the ultimate destination to that way of thinking about yourself and the scriptures is at best uh, you're a social overhauler or kind of a culture warrior in, in Christ's name. Not the worst of things. That's a million miles from what Christ is actually calling the church to do. And it's a million miles from the ultimate kind of bullseye or nucleus of the good news that he has for sinners like us, people just like this. So at least understand that. And then from there then, so what I want to do the rest of this morning is take that other path and say, if that's true, then where's the hope here? If that's true and we're empty-handed and we're wearing T-shirts that say, I bring nothing to the table before God, and we're like, where, where, where do we go? Where's the ultimate destination on the other path, the good path that we should be taking? And, and that is this, this second piece. So why are these stories here? They're here for our sake in the ways we talked about, but they're also here for the sake of Christ. And remember that in order to see Jesus here, not just the man Christ, but his death and, and his resurrection, his gospel, in order to see this, we have to start our search for meaning with the gospel itself in the way the Bible does, to itself. The bloody, horrific death of Jesus as the one true interpretive key to the whole Bible. And expect to find him in these narratives, even here. And I, and I can't underscore this enough. Since we're ending the book today, I want to really underline this. The most important part of this book, there's a ton of important parts of this book, the most important thing to see in this book is this repeated cyclical theme of deaths in the book 
that typify or resemble Jesus's and that accompany or bring forth salvation for for God's people. As if death was the how behind the what. If God's saying, I'm going to save you, the way is going to be through a death. It's not going to come any other way. That's what Judges is saying. The New Testament theology about Jesus' death comes from these stories. They didn't have the New Testament yet when they were writing it. They had these stories. They're getting the gospel from these stories. There's no hope without Jesus' death. This is where it comes from. Judges and other stories. The substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus Christ. The death of God's Son is the means by which God loves, forgives, makes a way out, makes a way of escape, all of that stuff. It's, it's hope for us. Even the worst of people uh, have, have a way of escape because of Jesus' bloody death. And so when we frame it that way and ask that question again, in today's case, who is it? It's clearly the concubine herself, the most unlikely of characters to serve as the heroine, but in her death, she is remembered and she is used to incite other tribes of Israel, or God through them, to destroy the abusive, rebellious, wicked, and unwilling to repent Benjaminites and to purge the evil from their midst. And that is precisely, precisely the story of Jesus. That is precisely the essence of the gospel message right there. And a few other ways to see this, and this is the, kind of the um, 30,000-foot view but on more of the, the ground level, on a more detailed, uh, it helps us to see, I'll have three things here as we look at the concubine as a type of Christ, but on one level it helps us to see this in Matthew 24. But this first piece is the relationship between the concubine and Jesus is seen in the extreme nature of her death as though her suffering had never been matched in Israel before. It's a very important detail that, that Samuel, the guy who wrote this thing, uh, is careful to, to write down because of how much it ends up resembling something Christ said. So Matthew 24, right before Jesus' death, he talks about his death in similar terms. He says, even, even though it's implicit, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, speaking about his coming death, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, always love that, but anyway, come back to that. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So when you compare this with Judges 19.30, right above it, you see a couple of correlations. One, just linguistically, you see this call to consider, remember, understand, take counsel of this great evil. And then on the other side of things, the, the most important part is theologically it's similar too. The observation that nothing this bad had ever happened. A death at the highest level, the greatest of offenses, the, the greatest of evils, really, in Israel at that time, was this concubine's death. They're saying, we've never seen this before. It's the same with Jesus' death. The greatest of atrocities, the greatest of abominations, the Son of God dying a criminal's death, that even Roman citizens weren't allowed to die that way. It was so excruciating. If you're a Roman, you're exempt from it. It's only for the worst of society, barbarians, just non-Roman citizens, to die that way, a torturous death for those six hours under the heat of the day, back torn open, slowly suffocating for six hours until eventually his heart gives out. I mean, it's the worst of things. Worst of things. And it's the same with Judges 19.30. The former, which is lesser, points to the latter, which is greater. All right, second, it's substitutionary. Her death is textbook substitution here. She dies 
instead of the people in the home. As it says in verse 24 there, just like Jesus, like in Titus 2, one of the thousand places we could look, Jesus gave himself for us. It was an exchange, a substitution. He gave himself for us to redeem us or buy us back from slavery, just like what's happening here cyclically in the book of Judges. Again, Judges theology that Paul uses to write this letter to Titus in the first century. So she dies instead of the Levite, just like, just like Christ for us. And to add on to that, you know, we might, um, we might cringe at the notion of the concubine's body being dismembered and shared, and, and rightly so. But is that really different from Jesus saying, you need to eat my body and drink my blood in order to be saved? Is it really that different? It's not. And in both cases, you know, Christianity is weird, but it's true. And, and in both these stories, bodies are shared in order to bring about salvation. In both these stories, bodies are shared in order to bring about salvation. And it's substitutionary. The last way we see this is, uh, is in her geography. So she is a Judahite from Bethlehem. Just like Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, she has kind of her uh, origin story there as well. She's, she's a Judahite. This is going to be fast if you're not kind of privy to this whole idea. Just bear with me. Another pronounced theme in the Bible that finds expression here is this juxtaposition between two, two characters from two different tribes, Levi and Judah. Two tribes of Israel that represent different things biblically. Levi represents the law. It was the tribe of priests and the law, the Ten Commandments, were mediated kind of between God and people through them. They were priests like Moses and Aaron, those kind of guys. Levi, which biblically represents figuratively and and allegorically the law, and Judah, who is the tribe of the eventual Christ, the tribe of kings, the tribe of Jesus, the tribe of the the new kind of priest in the future, the tribe of the New Testament. And so in in this story, and the Bible does this all the time, wish we had more time for this, but in this story, the Levite leads to sin and death, but the Judahite, the woman, through her death, leads to purification and salvation. Or to put it another way, as the Bible says uh, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3.6, the law kills us, but the Spirit of God gives life. The Ten Commandments, God's commandments, will kill you. They already have. And your attempts to keep them and to be good and to be upright and to be better than your neighbor, it's already killed you because it served as a kind of a judgment where it said, you really think you're that much better and you haven't kept them, nor have I. The law kills us, the law of God, but the Spirit of God gives life just by his resurrection, just by his grace. Jesus gives life. And the concubine, being, being from Judah and being from Bethlehem on top of that, looks ahead to this, that maybe one day someone else will be born in Bethlehem and be from Judah, and maybe someone else from that city will die, and maybe, maybe through their death, their body will be shared with the tribes of Israel and greater than that, the world. And maybe somehow that body will nourish, just like Jesus says about at communion, eat my body. Drink my blood. Maybe it will nourish people salvifically. Maybe that will happen. That's the hope from the judge's perspective, and that's what happens in the New Testament. If you're a Christian, you believe that. It's by grace you're saved, not by works. The fact that the Levite, the law figure, leads to death, and the Judahite, the Jesus figure, leads to life. Yet again, it's not by works that you're saved. It's not by what you do. It's by God just simply saying, I'm going to save that one. I'm going to die for him. I'm going to save her. I'm going to raise her from the dead. That's that's it. 
and his love in that. So in all of this, guys, and there's more to say, those are the three big ones, this is not coincidence. This is not coincidence. This story is, is not just a call to end this type of treatment of women, even though clearly that's an implication here. For men in the church, and husbands especially, uh, to counter this and be a true example of God to our sisters and our wives and how we put them first before ourselves. So clearly an implication that, again, men especially, all of us, but men especially need to hear that. But with that aside, what this is even more doing is it's serving as a picture of the how behind the what. It's a picture of a God who became mistreated, abused, and cut open for us that we might be saved from our sin. You know, think of other, other instances in this book where we saw the same thing in Judges Deaths that accompanied salvation and that typified the way Jesus died even. Eglon, Sisera, Jephthah's daughter, the line that Samson tore apart, Samson himself in the manner he died, looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and then add to that list today the concubine in Judges 19. All these people died in a way that looked like Jesus' death or that at least accompanied the salvation of God's people. This is what God painstakingly wants us to see in this book. And if we're too preoccupied with ourselves, we'll completely miss this. We'll completely miss the gospel. We'll completely miss his solution. We'll completely miss the point. There's no salvation apart from Jesus' death. There's no hope apart from Jesus' death. There's no victory apart from Jesus' death. It had to happen. God had to become human to die for humans. And he did that through his son. So why does the book end this way? To ask it one more time, but more about the conclusion. So much to say. Uh, but another way to look at it is to show, us, to show us the darkness, but also to anticipate the light. To intertwine hopelessness and hope. Um, our, our lives are like this. Maybe you're thinking that. A story you read, a movie you watched, you know, where things get so bleak and dark and yet there's glimpses of hope. That's the Bible story. But it's not just the Bible story, it's, it's the story of the cross. And so when, when we look at Jesus on the cross, that's what we're seeing. The sun goes out, but the light of the world was shining all the brighter, all the same, giving hope to sinners. You know, he is the true ravaged one for us, for us. He's the gospel himself. He's the, he's the abomination of desolation, the destroyed God's temple of his body. So, so, you know, he can empathize then with those who have been abused and also simultaneously fight and destroy the evil of sin itself. And also make a way for the worst of people like us to be saved. This is the great twist in Judges 19. The rapists brought upon their own destruction by raping the concubine. Just like Satan and our sin with him brought upon their own destruction by killing Jesus. It was the moment that darkness thought it won right here. But it was the very means by which God was saying, this is the only way to save people. It's not by what they do, how good they are, how many laws they keep. This was the only way. It was, it was like the, the greatest twist of all time, right? Satan thought he had him. Darkness thought he had him. And yet it was the very thing God used to bring about the best goodness, the, the most, most hope. We could, and we, we don't understand it's so great, but the, the, greatest, of all, the greatest of all hope. So, so one more time through this, guys, uh, for clarity. The, the bad news, you and I are just as bad as the worst of the people in Judges. 
and I'd ask you, do you believe it? If you don't, pray you would. Uh, read it again with the right biblical lens and, and see it as a mirror, not something for you to start to feel good about yourself. If you're, if you're doing that, think, does the Bible really talk well about people who think good of themselves and who compare? And then notice how it condemns it and then think, okay, maybe that's the wrong way to read the Bible then. Maybe the right way to read the Bible is to see yourself as like the people who are the worst characters. You are the villain and so am I. We're the villains. But praise God, he's a God who takes villains and makes them a part of his family. That's what he's like. He loves his enemies. So if you're not an enemy of God, you can't be saved. If you're not God's enemy, you can't be saved. If that's not part of your story, he didn't come for you. So there's lots of good news embedded in that. It's offensive for sure, but... Understand, God's love and forgiveness were costly. So that, that's the good news side. Your love beyond your wildest dreams. But never forget, his love and his forgiveness were costly. The gospel's not, you're an amazing person and, God's lo- and God loves you and that's it. It's just kind of this vague thing. The gospel is, we're so bad that this is what it cost him to save us. And this is why these stories exist in the Bible, to bring us low but also to show us a bloody Christ, the true concubine of Judges 19, who died that we might live. So these stories are here that, so that the worst things can happen and God can still say, watch me fight for you, even now. The worst things can happen and God can still say, watch me fight for you, even now. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Let the reader understand. And this is, these are part of these parentheticals and interesting points of both these narratives where it's saying, the worst of things has just happened. The Son of God died. Or in the concubine's case, she was raped in the manner she was and cut apart. The worst of things, never been heard of. Points to this. Let the reader understand. This is not passive. So it's an invitation to you guys, if you haven't done this before, is understand that God loved you by sending his Son to die for you. And understand it's by grace you're saved because you can't look at that cross and say, aren't I amazing? Because, you know, if you were, God would not have spent this much. He wouldn't have needed to spend this much to save you and me, right? Understand that Christ became an abomination to take on the abomination of your sin. Understand all, it all comes together with him. Consider it, take counsel, speak. God's love for you is so big, he sent his one and only beloved son to die for you. And that is what Judges is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this uh, part of Judges that might be even the hardest thing we've talked about all series, and there have been some doozies. God, but thank you for it. It's there for us. It's there for our humility. It's there for our consolation. It's there to show us you're an empathizer with those who have been oppressed. And yet, one who offers forgiveness to the oppressors if they choose to look at the cross and say, that had to happen because of what I've done to someone else. And we believe. And we bask in God's love. And so, God, help us to do that. These are difficult things. But the, the center of Christianity is so clear here. It's, so, it's not an agenda. It's not an agenda. It's a story about God who came to earth the darkest of things, he came in and he shone the light of his son into it, but not before he wore it around his neck and died on a cross. Uh, like the sacrifices of the Old Testament were for the people instead of them dying, an animal died. 
Christ is the ultimate final sacrifice of God. Not as an animal, but the spiritual kind of, uh, as a human, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John 1.29 says. So we thank you, Jesus, that you are our Lamb, our sacrifice. Thank you that you've died for us, and no sin is too big for you. It's horrific because our sins are. And so help us to take counsel, look, speak, make it the bullseye of how we live and move and have our being as human beings and as Christians, as a church, and forgive us from wandering from this. Uh, It's so easy to do. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray.